Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. And as some of you know, usually when I have a guest on, there is a reason, there is a purpose, there is something that connects me to this person in some way that I feel like I need to learn, learn more. And today's guest, Mandy Ingber, is no exception. And Mandy has such a huge bio of stuff. She's done so many really cool and interesting things as an actress, as a yoga teacher, as an astrologer, as an expert with fitness and health. And the list goes on and on. Also on Broadway, actually, I want to make sure I include that because I think that's cool. And we're going to definitely talk about that. But the way I came across Mandy is one of my oldest and dearest friends, Mark Rossman and his beautiful wife, Jamie, have been friends with Mandy for years and years and years and years. And we were talking just before I started recording this conversation that it's surprising that I had not come across Mandy. And so I was introduced to her from my friend, Mark Rossman. So I thought, you know, she's done all these cool things. I need to have a conversation with her because we seem like we have a lot to talk about. So welcome, Mandy. Thank you. Yeah. What a great, uh, what a great way to start a conversation. Um, yeah, I love that. I, you know, I, uh, I love that you don't know me. I love that. I don't know you. I kind of feel like my, life and it's no exception at age 54 um i'm constantly um being discovered and i love that i love the idea of being new at things and new to people uh you know now um and i so i love that i love i love that we're discovering each other and also obviously i i checked out your podcast to, you know, see what it was all about. And, um, in the intro that I heard last night, it was, you were talking about, you know, finding ourselves and losing ourselves and finding ourselves again, and that whole process. And that's so my process, like for my whole life. Um, I've, you know, there've been so many different things that have 
defined me at different times in my life. And um, just when I think I have a real grasp on who I am, <laughs> um, you know, I get to hang there for a little bit and then I get to redefine myself again. So now that you say that out loud, that's definitely probably one of the reasons why stars have aligned and brought us together because it's, it's subject identity is a subject that endlessly fascinates me. And I think for people that have been extremely public, especially it's something that's fascinating to me, uh, not because they're well-known or famous or that they've done certain things, but I think it's because socially those things have defined them. And there is an added dimension about how they come to find themselves when so much of who they are is defined by a public persona. And so given that you've had a very high profile public persona and you've mingled with lots of people that have very high profile public personas and your trajectory of the things you've done has morphed and changed and has involved sort of coming in and out of these public personas in various ways from being on TV uh, you were on Teen Witch and Cheers. You played, was it Carla's daughter, right? Carla Tortelli's played, daughter. Yeah, I played Carla's daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law. Uh, that was supposed to be um, like a mini Carla. So that that was, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was when I was uh, 17, I think. It was my first episode and it went all the way through until I was 21. So that was like a, that was a big chunk there. Um, yeah, it does seem like chunks. That's exactly, that's a great way to describe it. You've had chunks of these public personas and, and things that you've moved in and out of. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Um, all of that is true. Uh, well, I mean, let's start with like, I guess being an actor, you know, I mean like that, even that choice, um, when I was young, because I was, you know, my first job was a Broadway show, Neil Simon's Brighton Beach Memoirs. And that was my very first job. It was, um, you know, I didn't babysit. I didn't, you know, work at a frozen yogurt shop. Um, I, you know, decided I wanted to be an actress and I became one. How old were you at that time? Um, I was 14 when I got that job. Um, I was probably about, uh, you know, t 13 when I started auditioning for things and 14 when I got that job. But I, I, um, I think even choosing to be an actor, you know, like at that, at that time when I was younger, I had always been like pretty, I, I was always like intelligent and I was a good artist and, you know, all this different kind of stuff, but I found my self on a stage probably when I was like nine or 10, when I started my school for experiential learning, where mm -hmm. I went Jamie, that's how Jamie and I met each other, our mutual friend. And um, choosing to be an actor is an interesting choice because of uh, the identity, right? Like how much of how much of the character is you? How much of it is slipping into another person's identity? How much of it is about how other people perceive you? I mean, I think that 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 work or that search that actors go on also has to do with identity and really how to define yourself and even when you're marketing yourself, you kind of have to think about um, 
how you are seen as well so that you kind of fit into a certain, um, like you fit into a category that is castable, right? Okay, two questions about that before we get too far from that. When you're barely a teenager, there's so much about identity that is in flux anyway. I mean, everything is on the table. And so when you said you had made a choice to do this, um, I wonder, you know, when you're getting into acting, you're, you're, you're starting to convey and betray and become other people. Why do you think kids at such a young age, when they're just starting their own plight of identity, feel connected to or choose to go into that line of work? Cause it's a very special specific type of, yeah. And you're so I, young. <laughs> yeah. I can't, well, I can't speak to uh, like all people. I can only speak from my experience. Yes. Um, for, to, for my experience, um, I, I had a pretty like overbearing uh, father, like his energy was overbearing. Like the home situation was pretty volatile mm-hmm. uh, in terms of it was kind of, what I say is it was kind of like growing up in a war zone. Right. And mm-hmm. I was, and I was um, trained to be a suicide bomber. Like that's sort of like my soundbite for my childhood, even though it was like much more than that, you know, it was, it was very yeah. fun. My mother was very fun. You know, she, my mother was actually born in a displaced persons camp, um, like right after the Holocaust. And so she was an immigrant, but she was like really good at like having a good time and doing voices. And she, we, we would play that way. You know, my mother was like the, the comic relief and the fun, you know? So I think that what ended up happening for me is that um, what better way to explore your own identity than by, uh, you know, playing different characters and allowing different aspects of yourself to come out through whatever those situations are. So I I think actually it's it's a wonderful, and I think most kids do it anyway, because we tend to do play acting when we're kids organically. Um, And I think that it's actually a very healthy uh, way to explore different parts of the self in a, in a contained environment with witnesses. And to me, that always felt safe because I could pour um, my emotions and my feelings into scenes and be witnessed in that rather than what was going on in the family of origin, which was like a lot of chaos, Mm. it's way more organized and contained and safe to play as an actor in that way. And uh, it's a place where when you cry, it's like a fun thing and a good thing, or when you're screaming, it's a fun thing. You know, it's like, it, it adds levity to that that um, those experiences. Would you say that it gives safety and expression Yes. In a way that maybe real world wouldn't have provided. It gives you connection and safety in your expression. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes. Like, I don't think that there are very many safe places to do that um, as an adult either. I mean, I think that we are so repressed in terms of the, you know, when you see like kids or animals really letting themselves go, you know, mm-hmm. like when they, even when animals play, you know, it's like, it's like, we don't do that as, as, uh, as adults and it's not, and often we're tamped down as kids. So 
Yeah, it's I think that it's like a very freeing experience to also know that you're not all of those feelings and emotions and to be able to play around with, you know, I pl- I've played like nerdy characters, I've played like bratty characters, I've played bitchy characters, I've played overly sweet, like all of the things and you know, I'm not any of them solely. And so I, I think uh, for me, it was like a very, uh, yeah, safe and good, good way to explore. So the first job that I had, and I've always had, so, so identity, you know, it's like, it's like, we we're talking about this. So, you know, like I said, my family is Holocaust survivors and Orthodox Jews. <laughs> so like, even like a Jewish identity as uncomfortable as that is for me, you know, because like, you know, there's all these ideas about what that is too. Right. But I can't, I'm genetically, that's what I am. Um, I think that ultimately like being in a Neil Simon play and being able to like play with, you know, play with Jewish identity Mm -hmm. in that play originally, I think that that was like a positive productive place for me to explore that um, or or to be seen as that. Did it inform you in any way about things around yourself or that Jewish identity that you might not have discovered? Um, I think that what it gave me was like a plate, like sort of like a, you know, to know that like you're not the other in terms of like Neil Simon being one of like the great playwrights and it, very Jewish actually, you know, but like, right. like, like where that, where that is a fun thing where that's a beneficial thing, where that's like a creative thing. Um, I don't know if it necessarily like, cause I, I knew a lot about my, I know a lot about my grandparents, you know, I knew all of my grandparents. I had them all until I was 20 years old, which yeah. I think is a real blessing. I mean, also in terms of identity, like, like I, the, the older I get, the more I understand that a lot of who I am is just generationally handed down. And, you know, that, that, that is why maybe I have certain, like why I'm paranoid, (laughs) you know, or, you know, like just certain ways that I feel, I think are just genetically in my blood and my bones, you know? Um, And uh, I think it's just, it was just a place to put that. That's all I can say. Like it was somewhere to put the energy. I think a lot of the things that I've done in my life have been about where can I how can I be productive with, and where can I put all of this energy? Um, a lot of it, nervous energy, to be honest with you, how can I be productive with this nervous energy? Certainly having outlets. I mean, I wish more kids would figure out what their outlet is going to be to help channel or guide or transmute some of that nervous energy because it's all coming of age. And I still feel even at 54 that I'm coming of age again, you know, we keep coming of age, what age, I don't know, but whatever it is, (laughs) we're coming there. (laughs) And for you, that's an interesting place to start, you know, to have an understanding that your identity can be guided or channeled in ways that we're going to best serve you. Yeah. I mean, I've done it both ways. Obviously I've had, you know, like I've, I've channeled it into like the destructive ways too. So like, so when I was an actress, not only did I have my acting career going on, but I also, you know, I developed an eating disorder um, simultaneously, you know, when I was a child, um, I probably started my eating disorder when I was around 10 or 11. 
that was like the self-destructive part of my nature also playing itself out. That was something to be healed later in, in a different part of my, in a different incarnation and a different kind of work that I then did. You know, that was what kind of ultimately that was healed through my, through my work as a spinning instructor and a fitness instructor that it just keeps morphing, you know, like I wanted to include that. It's not all like, oh yeah, I'm so healthy. And I know how to channel all this energy. I also didn't know how to channel some of it. That's a good awareness. And I want to circle back to that because that might have tied into why you went into providing such in-depth health and fitness and yoga, like about, which all stems from loving yourself, learning how to nourish and love yourself, which I want to uh, bring up. You had said on your, um, your mission statement is to integrate all facets of myself in order to inspire self-love. Yeah. So it circles back to this idea of all these facets of yourself, which I think it's, I came up with that when I was, um, so I was uh, 28 when I, when I uh, came up with that mission statement and I developed that during, um, was it also in class in acting class, uh, which is really like, it was always important for me as an actor to be in class because, um, although I worked a lot, I also, you know, you kind of get a pigeonholed or typecast into how someone that looks like me is perceived by the person that's casting or whatever. So you don't get to play all parts of yourself. You don't, you know, it's sort of limiting. I mean, what gets you cast is also the thing that limits you, right? Right. Right. Which is why all of these, and that's what continually happens over and over again. The more I define myself, the like, then it's like, okay, but then, then this part of me isn't included. So when I was in acting class and I was 28 and I had already, um, it kind of evolved out of my acting career. I developed that mission statement and shortly thereafter, I developed it when I was getting some cranial sacral body work, mm-hmm. uh, cranial sacral and polarity work. What evolved out of that was I simultaneously started, I was looking for work because I had, um, I'd worked a lot as an actor. That was my career. And then in my early twenties or in my, in my early twenties, I was, I was uh, physically assaulted and, uh, attempted raped. And, um, that took me out of my acting career. It, it brought me into a new place where I was no longer able to work a room. I wasn't wanting to work a room. It was, I was able to still live my life, but I just, it was like a healing needed to happen. You know, that happened when I was like 22, I think. 22 years old. And so I then had to like, let myself fall apart and rebuild. And so during that process of falling apart and rebuilding myself, um, I didn't work for five years, which is when most people are, you know, like you're just getting out of college. Most people when they're 22 years old, I didn't go to college for me. My college was like, I was on a show called my sister, Sam, and I was on cheers and I was doing teen witch and I was doing all of these different, um, acting jobs. And so for this five-year period, I was kind of under construction. And so this was one of the healing modalities that I was doing. At that time, that's when I found teaching. So I found one of the, one of the multiple jobs I was looking for different jobs. I was like, I'll do anything. I'll be somebody's assistant. You know, I can like help people pack up their houses. I'll do whatever. And a couple of different people said, 
I think that you'd make a good spinning instructor because I started taking spinning when I was in 1991. And I was like, I don't know, I'm not really like built for that, but I needed the work. So I did it. And it was like, it was like this part of myself came out of me. And also I had been also in Kabbalah. I went to Kabbalah at that time too. So I was doing like all these different healing things plus Kabbalah and then spinning, teaching spinning came up and very quickly things turned around for me. And what I realized was that the same thing I was using to take myself down, which was like this very hypercritical um, voice in my own head, you know, that was like, that, that was like the eating disorder, which was really about controlling my large emotions. When mm-hmm. I took that same energy and I turned it outward, I was suddenly able to power these rooms filled with people. And my classes grew until I was teaching, you know, it started off as like three people. And then it's, it ended that I was teaching like a hundred people a morning. And I was this like, you know, guruish popular spinning instructor. And the way that I would teach was through story. I would teach by like sort of, uh, I was the character, you know, and I would, I I would speak out my internal dialogue. And it turned out that when I, I started talking self-love, you know, I started talking, framing sensation, you know, like in the positive, like, were you believing it when you were framing it or were you just saying it like, cause sometimes I think we get conditioned to vocalize these platitudes that we've heard over and over again. And we don't even really, I'm not saying you did or didn't, but I know in my own experience, connecting to those platitudes doesn't really move the internal or emotional needle when, if we are in a really dark or dreary place within ourselves or in a major transition. So for instance, fake it till you make it, you know, lean in. I can't even tell you how many times yeah, yeah. I would hear um, that. I would be like, I don't even know yeah, what that means. Of, I fucking yeah, exactly. hate this saying. Yeah, you're full of shit. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I'm not like that. That's it's actually no. Um, yes, I know what you mean. Um, so when I was 22, that's when I was, you know, physically assaulted and attempted raped. I lost my. Okay, let's put you this way. I was. I was. Uh, <laughs> I was the victim of a violent crime. I had had a career that I then lost. Um, you know, my face had been broke, you know, I'd been beaten. I had healed from that. I was in a process of like reinventing myself, which took about five years Yeah. So through that process, um, is when I found, um, I found spinning and spinning was actually, um, the thing that, uh, taught me the, I was raised on um, yoga and macrobiotics. My father was like very um, cutting edge and, and um, we, so I was raised on all of that stuff. But what happened is that I, um, through spinning, through sitting on the bike in the middle of like all of this, everything, all of the chaos, all of the movement, but by sitting, I found my center, you know, Mm -hmm. and I found that stillness in the, in the middle of all of the movement. And that's really when I, that's that I found out the most about myself um, by connecting in through spinning, to be honest with you. And when I became an instructor, which is why I thought, oh, I could never be an instructor because I'm not like, woo, you know, that's not my vibe. Right. And, and um, what my teacher, uh, the, one of my spinning teachers told me was speak out loud what you tell yourself when you're riding. And that's great. That's I, great advice. Right. So I, that's how, so I was like, 
oh my God, I can't do that, you know, because yeah, it might have been awkward, but wow, how empowering. It was very empowering. And so I, so that voice, when I started speaking it out, I knew, I know how to get myself through. I did the hard work. You know what I mean? I did like the heavy lifting. So what happened was I then was sharing that with other people and it was like, oh my God, this is super valuable. So, so I had transformed my own internal dialogue basically. And I had a, by the way, what I didn't uh, share with you was that I developed an eating disorder, but what ended up happening was by the time I was in my early twenties, I had developed this sort of back and forth, um, sort of being exercised bulimic, meaning I, I never threw up, but I could like lose 10 pounds in like two days because if I didn't eat or drink and I took like eight classes in a row, I could like lose a pound a class. Okay. So I had developed this really bad habit of like basically going up and down. That makes me so sad when you say that. I, I, well, I, I know the, the struggle in that. I understand. Struggle. So, so that had happened to me and then I had some injuries and then I, and what ended up happening was I ended up um, binging my way to my correct weight. And so everybody thought I was okay. You know, I went from like 86 pounds to being like 102 pounds and I looked, you know, cute and normal, but like, I still was battling within myself, Mm -hmm. you know, and nobody, people didn't really know this, but, and then I kept that the pattern continued. And then I binged my way beyond my correct weight. And then I was like, you know, then I had gained like 50 pounds basically. And I made a conscious decision to, um, just let myself be as I was, you know? That was the conscious decision that I had made in my early twenties to just like, let myself be. And, and so it was a lot, I I forced myself into acceptance um, of my body and loving my body as it was, you know, as is just love yourself as is. That was also when, you know, the assault happened and the healing had to just, you know, I really had to let myself heal. I had my whole face was broken, you know, like I had to have two surgeries and, and I, um, I just was, you know, it was like, it was just a period where I, I had to, uh, get really humble and not be seen in a way for the way that I had been seen. So let me ask, how did that play into the fact that you had been in a profession and a career, which dictated your livelihood and in some ways informed your identity where you were being seen? I think that what happens in life, this has happened for me. I don't know if it happens for everybody, but I kind of feel like there's a lot of different things that happen simultaneously that end up being sort of like, um, like a prism or different reflections of itself. So the truth about where I was at was I was, um, I was in a place where I, um, I was actually tired of being seen a certain way. I was tired of playing a certain role over and over again, because I had actually, because that character that I played in Cheers was so successful in a way, like it was, and it was something I had to work really hard to bring out of me when I first auditioned, but ultimately I got a little bit frozen in that character. Um, And so I was already a little, a little uh, tired of that character. So it was also like the nineties and packaging started happening and you know the roles that I was reading for were not as exciting to me I I Mm -hmm. kind of felt like I was going up for like for parts that were not that amazing with 
a bunch of other actresses who could have just as easily just pick one, you know, like we're all good. Like just pick one of us and whatever, you know, don't force us to like, you know, go like just bend over backwards for this mediocre, you know, thing. Right. So I was a little bit not over it, but I was kind of like over it. So well, when you were describing it, that what I got was this image of standing in for yourself. We all do what we have to do, you know, to like get through difficult times. So, you know, there it's all story. It's all the stories that we tell ourselves anyway, you know. Um, but the story that I tell myself is that, um, you know, I had this eating disorder. I was in this loop in myself. I wasn't, you know, for as much as my acting career was like my love, my eating disorder was my relationship, you know? So it was like, that was, that was a, that was a place that I was living in myself. That was very challenging when I was assaulted. It was like, and I started working when I was 14 years old Right out of a, um, a household where I really felt like I needed to take care of myself. Like that was a place that I was coming from and I did it and I fulfilled a dream and I started off like my life by fulfilled. Okay. I'm going to do this. Great. Okay. Now. Great. I fulfilled this dream. And I thought I had it all together because I knew what I wanted to do and I did it and I was doing it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that I was bypassing this, like, I didn't want to be vulnerable. You know? I understand. And so what happened is I then became very vulnerable. And it was like the first time that I actually had to ask for help, rely on other people, yeah. not know what I was doing. And it also knocked me into, because when I had that experience of having my, you know, face bashed in um, and whatever, almost whatever, almost being choked to death, whatever the things were, I felt my life force come through my body by itself in a way that was like, oh, I want to live. And I think that when you have an eating disorder on some level, it's kind of like trying to kill yourself fairly slowly. (laughs) And so what happened for me was I felt my life force. And then once you know, when you have an experience like that, you know yourself in a way that many people don't know themselves. You know, like you are literally, it's a life and death situation. It's one of these nightmares that nobody ever wants to happen to them, but you get to experience a part of yourself that is totally um, like your true animal self. That was what that experience, like, vitalized me in a way Mm. and gave me permission to surrender, um, even more into the, I don't know, you know? And so for five years, fortunately, I was like my own sugar daddy, you know, because I had worked so much, I was my own, you know, like provider. Mm -hmm. And for five years, I was able to like unravel and like organically, unwind myself. Mm -hmm. Um, At that time, that's when I developed a lot of the relationships that, you know, um, you know, later, whatever, like Jennifer Aniston, you know, being like one of my clients also was my very dear friend. And, you know, she's one of the multiple relationships that I was like, you know, cultivating at that time. And so those are very strong, you know, friendships that were cultivated during that time when it seemed like nothing was happening. I don't like to be defined. I can be limited, limited by my own defiance. 
um, outside in thing, it's not necessarily my, that's not the, that's not the bear I'm fighting with, you know, like a lot of people are. Um, but I do, I do battle with identity. Right. Um, right. It's not because of society's standards. That's just, I, you know, I can't, I can't go there. So that's kind of, I don't know. It's a roundabout way of explaining it. I appreciate many prisms of that perspective. There, there are so many pieces of it, fractals of it that come together and yet we carry them with us, but they don't define us. Right. So, so being Jewish, whatever my nose, you know, that was like always a thing, right. When I was younger, I mean, I'm very super Jewish looking. So it's like, that's not the only thing that makes me look Jewish, but you know, I had just gotten used to my nose when I was, you know, like when I was assaulted and, and what ended up happening was I, my nose was like fractured into multiple little tiny little pieces. And so like, if you, you touch my nose, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, like you can feel all the fractures and just that in and of itself, you know, it changed me to the point where it changed something about, like, I remember looking and, and just being like, Oh my God, my nose, you know, this is, it's like, this isn't even my, this isn't even my f- nose. This is the nose that happened after somebody punched me in the face. So just in terms of identity and that just being smashed, that happened for real, you know, literally in my, you know, to my face. These parts of ourselves ended up, you had said you ended up teaching and speaking that truth out loud while doing the spinning classes and hearing yourself speak your own truth. I can imagine I, I write. So for me, and the writing I do is not like journal writing and it's not like just typical writing. I have a very active, engaged process of writing I call being in a conversation with myself. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but it's not. It's very deep. And hearing your own vulnerability and truth and the difficulty of, of all of that right? seems like that was something that was so important for your healing. And it led you on this path of becoming this really kick-ass sought after teacher, which then changed things again. Yes. So it's speaking out process, you know, basically it was speaking out process and Mm -hmm. for me, um, not hearing myself because, uh, you know, whatever, really, I think that the healing happened from yes, other people hearing me. Um, and, like literally the physical reverberation through my body. Like I, I believe that that was a huge part of what was healing for me was the literal, like the reverberation of what I was vocalizing coming through my body. That's that, that's my experience. Just as I, what I say is I learned how to love by um, teaching because I like I loved my students for what I could give to them. And you know how they say that, um, this, it wasn't what I was getting back. It literally was like the feel, what I was giving. And you know, like, that's really what, when you're in love or whatever, what, what I think that the thing that feels so amazing is not the other person necessarily like showering you with love, but like the feeling of love coming through your body, you know, your love, it's literally your own, you know, it's your own expression that feels so good. 
<laughs> I think. Um, and so it was that experience. And yeah, then um, as a result of, it was like a whole new part of myself as a teacher, as a person showing up for others on a daily basis. Um, it was like the, as a motivator, all of that, um, you know, the DJ part of myself, the helper part of myself, the co the comedian, you know, like the astrologer, because I was using um, astrology, even though people didn't know that it was part of what I used to, to like give it a structure. And then also sharing my moment by moment daily stories and experience as a, um, as, and just assuming that it was going to be relevant to somebody, you know, and it turned out that it really was. Um, and then I became, you know, like the local celebrity, you know, of my little neighborhood. And, um, and that was my identity for a while. And that morphed, ironically, my father was really into cycling when I was a kid. So nothing is really my own, you know, this is, which is, I think why I'm always <laughs> trying to break out of everything. Cause it's like, no matter where I go, I'm led back into this very large prison of all this stuff that I've been exposed to from very early on. Um, but that then became my identity. And then from there becoming a well-known yoga instructor and health and wellness expert uh, that emerged out of a breakup that I had. And then, and then which piggybacked on top of, you know, Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt's breakup. And so all of it kind of just like kept expanding, expanding, expanding. And um, then I became known as this health and wellness expert and did all of this, all of this stuff as a health and wellness expert. And it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Cause it's like all of the things about myself coming together is what it felt like at the time I became public, which that was not my intention. When I became a teacher, I didn't intend to then become public. You know, I didn't leave acting, start teaching to become like famous. And then I become more well-known for being a teacher than I was as an actress. And I really enjoyed that identity for a long time. So what prompted you to write a book? Because I work with people one-on-one -on -one and I do writing retreats in Santa Fe, New Mexico for people that have aspirations of writing a book. And it's the one thing they say they always wish they can do. And it's the one thing that always is the thing that gets put aside and people get really bogged down by the fear, the procrastination. So writing a book is a big deal. How did you set about knowing, okay, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to put this out in the world, what I've learned, what I know, my wisdom between the heart, the mind, the body, and how it all comes together. I was presented with multiple uh, opportunities and uh, one of them do speaking engagements and retreats. And I had tons of clients and, you know, I was doing um, endorsement deals and shows. And I had, you know, my blog that I did every week and my newsletter that I did every month and my daily, whatever the things were that I was putting out daily. So I was already like writing a lot yeah. and it being very productive. And one of the things that came up, I, I self-produced my own DVD. Um, which, which was uh, also a big deal because I, I decided to do that myself and not do that through like a production company. Um, and I self-distributed that initially and then, and then uh, licensed it to uh, Gaim after that for seven years. So I did all of that. And uh, then one of the things that I think 
some people always told me when I was teaching spinning that I should write a book. But then I think I, a couple of people approached me about wanting to write a book with me, you know, like, like editors or whatever, or wanting to like ghostwrite or whatever. At a certain point, this one, like I had a manager for like six months, you know, and uh, they were like, well, if you, if you want to write, a, they, I had a book proposal. Somebody wanted me to, to give them a, uh, to write a book. And then they said, well, we'll, we'll let us talk with this agent. So this agent um, basically uh, talked to me and wanted my book. And I was like, okay, great. So she connected me with a ghostwriter. And I thought that um, basically I was going to have somebody, you know, ghostwrite this book for me. We wrote the proposal together. Um, and it was while I was doing all these other things at the same time. And then uh, we sold the book, but it wasn't enough, like it, we didn't get like a huge amount of money that she thought we were going to get this woman. And so she didn't want to do it um, for that amount of money. And I was like, okay, I tried to hire somebody else. And then ultimately I was encouraged by a couple of friends. Um, they were like, you know, you can write this book, you know, you, you can, you can do this. And I was like, all right. I got like excited about it. Cause I was like looking at all these mediocre writers, you know, trying to like get them to help me to write this book. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, I'm a mediocre writer. Like I'm trying to use other mediocre writers. I can, I'm mediocre. I can do this. So I decided I was going to write the book the way that I did it, even though, by the way, like a CAA agent told me, um, don't write a book. It's like not worth your time. You won't, you know, it's like, basically don't, you know, don't bother. It's not worth, it's not worth the time that you're going to have to put into it. And, you know, the, the returns are very low. So thank goodness I didn't listen to that person. Yeah. Um, I had the outline because we wrote this book proposal. She wrote this book proposal, right? So we had the outline together and I just took the outline every day for, I would grab, I had a lot of other things I was doing, but I would grab like two hours a day. That was mm. my aim. And I would grab it. Like I'd go to a coffee house or I'd go to a restaurant or I'd write it on the go. Um, so it might be an hour here, an hour there, but every day I wrote for two hours, no more, no less. And, um, usually I'd hit five days out of seven. And at the end of five and a half months, I had a manuscript. Basically I had known, uh, already the way that I wanted to structure the book. It's kind of like, you know, like your first album, you know, because I had all of the material coaching right. people and, you know, so I knew essentially what the book was going to be. I just needed to follow it through. And it's, it's a 28 day mind body makeover book. It's basically, um, a fitness book meets a creativity book. So I always say it's kind of like a fitness book meets the artist's way. Um, and it's, it's very much, you know, my philosophy is about loving your body into shape. Um, which is how I, you know, which is how I do it. And which is how I healed my eating disorder and which is how I helped other people, you know, um, do, you know, just do their workouts and it's, it's a lot of fun. So that's, so that's kind of how it organically happened. Um, it became a New York times bestseller. Um, and that's, so I can also, you know, I can say that. That to me is an, is an accomplishment. Even if that didn't happen for so many people I know that that want to write a book or think about writing a book or entertain the idea, I think just finishing a book is an accomplishment unto itself. It's something to be so proud of and however it shows up in the world. I mean, yes, yeah. awesome. Right. New York Times bestseller. Look at all the people whose lives you've you've helped, all the people you've touched. 
all the ways that it it has uh, connected and and helped heal other people. Uh, yes. That is amazing. I also, by the way, I wasn't going for that when I wrote it. I, I never like even thought about that. It was just something, it was like one of the next designated things to do. And I just fulfilled because I had a book deal. You know, I'm one of these people. It's really nice to have. I like to fulfill, I guess if like we were going to, cause I was thinking about that earlier, like, how do we really know what our identity is? I mean, my real identity is I like to meet a demand. Like I really am that person. I like to meet demands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like, I mean, as whatever as that is, I, it, that it helps me if I have a contractor, if I have to be responsible to something, you know, I, that's, that is, uh, I have to meet the demand. I know that about myself. And the and book is called Yoga Philosophy. 28 days to the ultimate mind body makeover. That's my first book. And then I did write a second book as well, um, which is uh, yoga philosophy for inner strength. And that I also did that because I am, you know, like that my first job was like, you know, I'm on Broadway, you know, I'm in the original company, my, you know, my first book, I'm like, I'm a New York times bestseller. So that I feel, I feel pressure with that. Like then I get like, oh shit, you know, like what's, how do you do the next thing? Right. And um, so I did the next book. Um, and a lot of that was because I needed to do, I needed to like do a next thing, <laughs> like for myself to know that I could do a next thing. Did it create more pressure or more freedom to have reached such a heightened pinnacle for a first time out? Because I know once you put a book out there, the energy of that book ripples out and it creates things. I had my first book. Uh, me, myself, and I, and that book came out. And when it came out, people find you, conversations happen, things start to become uh, like that organic ripple effect that you can't stop. Some of the things are just amazing and such, such a surprise. And sometimes you feel like, I mean, at least in my case, I felt a little bit more pressure in other ways. So it gave me freedom in some ways, but it also created some sort of an added expectation on myself. Yeah, I, I, I do think that every time that you accomplish something that's out in the world that is successful, um, that it that it comes with that pressure. That that's part of that's part of doing things in the world and being recognized. Um, so there's always uh, people that I mean, pretty much the first time that I you know when I produce my DVD, it's like, okay, what's the next one going to be? You know, I mean, that's like it's practically in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. It's almost like I guess I I never had kids, but people, you know, it's like, okay, you're getting married. When are you having kids? You know, it's like, there's always a next thing. We're so ambitious, you know, the way that we think in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, so that just comes with it. And uh, yeah, that pressure is, uh, is a real thing. You know, I could, I handled a lot of pressure. I think that because I felt that way with my, as an actor, I could take a lot more, uh, you know, once I hit this wellness, this wellness well, and um, so my fitness and wellness career, you know, has been like a 20 year thing. And then I burnt out of that too. Like I, I did burn out, you know, I, I, I burned out after my second book. Like I was just, I had, I felt like I had to do a lot of things and I did them and I burnt out. Did you feel like the expectations of working with such a high profile clientele had any impact because some of the clients that, that you worked with were Jennifer Aniston and Helen Hunt, uh, Ricky Lake, Jennifer Lawrence, Brooke Shields. You mentioned, I'm sure there's lots of others, but 
working with such a high level, I'm, and I know they're just all people too, but they're constantly scrutinized for how they look. So of course they want to know, well, how did you get in shape or how did you, you know, there comes, you, you become the add on, right, <laughs> you exactly. know, that's, so. a, that's a good word for what you just said, the add on. So there's a little bit of a thing that can happen. It's, it's a double-edged sword, you know, it's wonderful to be, you know, there's something wonderful about people who have already won the trust of like the public, right? So since they have the trust and they point a point in your direction, you are then immediately like credible because they have pointed people in your direction. Now, that's that's a great thing. I wouldn't be where I wouldn't I wouldn't have a lot of what I've done and be where I am or who I am without that. However, my own message and my own, you know, like my own original, you know, identity and message can get lost when it's about how these other people, you know, look the way that they look, because that's really not my message. So I had to play that, you know, like I, I understand, look, I mean, I get it, but yeah, I had to work with that um, uh, dissonance uh, for myself and find ways to bridge that for me, for them, for everyone. So I had to get over this other thing, which is I grew up around, you know, celebrity, my peers, you know, many of my peers and friends became incredibly famous celebrities. And um, it never served anyone to know that, you know, famous people, right? Like that's, it's not beneficial usually to anyone. (laughs) And I had to get over, I would compartmentalize myself even between my celebrity friends. You know, it's like, they didn't even, it's like, I'm, compartmentalized in all these different like celebrity groups and then to have it my like sort of my cover blown (laughs) you know is what happened and then I had to get used to like the first time that it happened was with Helen Hunt because she was my dear friend but then she also was taking my spinning classes and talked about me, you know, on the red carpet, you know, when she was nominated for as good as it gets. And it was like, at first I was like, she, she said something about taking my spinning class, you know? And I was like, you're telling people I'm your spinning instructor. You know, <laughs> it's like, you're my friend, you know, whatever. It's like, it felt weird, but I did what I didn't get was she was actually doing me a solid, you know, by saying that, but I, that wasn't my orientation, you know? And when the Jennifer Aniston, you know, thing happened, that was because she put me out there. She, she outed me, you know? So it was, uh, it was just time to receive the, uh, public, you know, it's time to be out in public again, basically. Yeah. The universe sends you things. Sometimes it's through friends. Sometimes it's like circumstances, but that was the circumstance I was in, you know? And the truth is that I had a lot of, I had the chops to back it up. And I had to trust that and also accept my position, you know, and accept that as my identity and trust that that ride was going to, I could be that, you know, I could be in the public eye. I had been very nervous to be in the public eye um, after uh, 
prior, there was another thing that happened in my twenties, which was uh, one of my good friends was killed by her stalker. And it was like sort of the the first person that, you know, put stalkers on the map. It was this actress, Rebecca Schaefer. And um, she had this uh, stalker who basically went after her. And it was, it was, it was a pretty intense experience, you know? And at that point I was like, oh, do I really want to be in public? Like, what the hell, you know, this is, you know, that was the year before my assault. And so I had a little bit of a, I, I, I was a little nervous about that. And I just, I got over it. I worked on some, I worked on myself a little and I got over it. Dissonance is such a, is one of my favorite words. And the fact that you used it, I, I love that word because it says so much without having to explain it all. You know, I, I get what you were saying when you, you described that and whatever's going on around us, whatever circumstances and whatever we're thrust into, whether it's overnight or from somebody else has given us a solid, a Jennifer Aniston calling us out or we're constantly being asked to step in and and step out of ourselves based on all of all of those things and those circumstances. And my experience is that when things blow up in a way that they happen quickly or they're pretty substantial, there's this lag time. And that in-between time is almost like this surreal, <laughs> you know, that is the dissonance. There's this, this time and this gap where we have to integrate and figure out what does it mean to us? And because we've changed and our values changed and our, our relationships changed and our relationships to our relationships change, yes. then we have to recenter and reintegrate and say, okay, what does it mean to me now? That's right. Yeah. So that's where I'm at right now. I don't know about you. I mean, I feel like this age is an interesting age um, because of that. It's because it, there is a review back to the thing of identity. You know, am I defined by the things that I do? Yeah. You know, like, am I defined by my relationships? Am I defined by my ancestors? Like there's so many different ways that we are defined, especially women as well. Women are traditionally defined by who you're, you know, like who your friends are, who you're married to, who your kids are, what you're, you know, it's like that, like that kind of a thing. I don't have those things, you know, that's not where I put my energy. It's not the way that my life played out. And in fact, what I say is like, it's like, it wasn't my major in college, you know, like I just wasn't doing what everybody else was doing. I think most women at this age probably feel this way anyway, because, you know, kids grow up early, mid fifties, you know, that's when a lot of women, find themselves back with themselves. What are you into right now? What are you like dreaming about and imagining and contemplating or even letting it levitate somewhere outside in the ether of your cosmos? I was in a major car accident in 2018, which um, I had already like had a health crisis. I'd already like had the burnout, the health crisis. And then I had a major car accident, um, which kind of took me out and put me into an early lockdown <laughs> as most yeah. of the lockdown. So I was a little early with my lockdown. Often for me, a uh, change, my spiritual, ethereal, mental, all of it, like all the intangibles, those changes are usually accompanied by a physical event. Um, that's what happened to me. I have felt very complete with my uh, work in health and wellness, not to say that I would never, you know, do this or that again, it's not like that, but I feel very complete. 
in, in my message, in my work that I've done and the people that I've helped and, you know, the healing that I've done for myself. And so, yeah, it's like, okay, here we are. Like, what's this next, you know, chapter. I'll tell you the thing, the play, the areas that I'm playing around in. Um, one is, is memoir. So that's one to get a, just go a little more personal to not rely on the helping others so much, you know, like that's something that I think I'm good at and that I've always relied on in my friendships and in my work. And, you know, it's like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? The deeper realms of my own, you know, history and self um, and expressing that and sharing it. Um, It also could turn into a solo show, (laughs) but anyway, the writing going deeper into the writing, that's what I'm, that's where I'm playing. I've been doing astrology readings because that's a, a a huge part of my, you know, my teaching of my world. So the astrology readings have been great because that's a place where I can help people one-on-one, have good, deep conversations in a very like connected way. So that's, that's a place for me right now. That's feeling good. I'm wanting that partnership, you know, too, like I'm wanting new love and partnership as novel as that is for me, even though I've had good love in my life, you know, I've had actually wonderful love with all the wrong people. They're all wonderful people who I still love today, who still love me today, but they're, they've always been like, not really the right person. <laughs> you know. are, are you reading my script? So I really want, though, I mean, I've been able to do so many other things in my life. I kind of am feeling like, you know, that's as valid as anything. In fact, it's almost everything. I mean, yeah. not that it defines who you are, but it certainly helps express those parts of yourself of who you are, whatever love, whatever form that that is what it brings up and having a, a, a partnership where somebody's pushing your buttons or or lights, lights you up, you know, both ways. I look at Mark and Jamie's relationship as an example, you know, I think they've been together 27 or 28 years or something. I have other friends that have been with their partners for a very long extended period of time. I think that's something that I wanted at one point for myself. It didn't work out that way. I've been married twice and I'm, I'm with somebody now in a great relationship. But at the same time, I think about that continuity. Most people I know that are in those long-term relationships, it's a sense of family. You know, they have that familiarity, like it's family, Well, but they like drive I- each other crazy. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I think that you can't have, you can't live every life, you know, we can't all, it's like, you can't have all of it. It's just, you have, you get what you get. So like, yeah, I'm never, I'm not the person, like I said earlier, all the things that happened already happened and the things that didn't happen, didn't happen. You know, that's kind of what happened. Like when you're this age, a lot of life has been played out, right? So I'm not going to have my, you know, like that's not my path. My path is not that I met somebody when I was 20 years old and, you know, like we're growing old together and we're each other's witness and blah, blah, blah. I have that with some friendships, but I don't have that with a love. And I'm okay with that I could be like 54 and still like, you know, have that like exciting spark that happens, you know, like in the beginning, I love that. So I'm excited <laughs> I get to have that again. And potentially if I live long enough, could have a 20 year relationship. So it's like, I still could have that. And I get excited thinking about that. I figure if I've been able to do all these other things that other people 
when I was an actor, it was like, oh my God, that's so competitive. Very few people make it. You know, there's always like people going to whisper in your ear, like, oh, like that's so hard or whatever, you know? And, and it happened when I became an instructor as well. It was like, oh, yoga, it's like very competitive. Is there a, a career out there or, or is it competitive? It's all competitive, you know, yeah. actually, you know, like there's always going to be like another person wanting to do what you want to do and whatever, but like, we can't succumb to the doubts and the, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like there, you have to feel like the wild card and the right thing. And you have to follow your desires, you know, you have to. I have. I think to. it goes back to what you say. There's only, there's only one you who's yes. experienced what they've experienced, and to be vulnerable, and to trust that, and express that, and and move within that, and outside of that, and dance with that, and and love that, and honor that. And sometimes one of the things I teach people a lot, and especially when I'm helping them with writing, them writing their own stories is this idea about embracing the villain. And by that, I mean, there are parts of yourself or of your life or things you've done that unless you get really so honest with the pain or the guilt or the shame or the discomfort of what those choices might have been or who they might have hurt, like you can't get to the fullness of everything else that comes with it. So to be, to be in that place where you can recognize this is all of who I am. And I can look at those parts of myself that don't feel as good or as <laughs> prepackaged tidy. <laughs> yeah. That's been really scary for me. And really, um, I, I, this year, actually, I've discovered some stuff that, um, that I really, cause that was part of what I was having trouble with in my when I was looking at my solo show and when I was trying to write my solo show is that I, I couldn't find the character me. Um, I couldn't find her shadow, you know, like I was having a really hard time finding my own shadow. Um, and uh, which is odd considering that I often lead with like a sort of, I lead with like my darkness or a shadow because, you know, I just want, I want to know that people can handle it. But turns out, you know, my brother confronted me and I actually, I actually did some things that like really were not cool that hurt him. And it was like, oh my gosh, okay. But I, I chose to do some deeper work on that. And then that emerged and I was ready to look at it, but that's been really challenging for me. It's the hardest thing with the people that I work with that in conversations or when we have conversations, those things that come up, I think just understanding why you'd want to, or what it can do, or what's the point, or how do you do it in a way that's graceful and dignified and not taken down everybody around you. There, there are a lot of pieces that, that go with that part of the puzzle, very specific, the freedom that comes through on the other side. And I don't want to use that word freedom as a, as a cliche, but there is a freeing of the self and of the identity that comes in the embracing of that totality of the experience. Yeah. Like a liberation. There's something, and I don't like the word acceptance. In fact, that's on my shit list of words <laughs> never to use. I, I prefer allowance over acceptance. I think people use these words all the time without really understanding the difference in that nuance. Yeah. But there's something about allowing 
a truth to emerge versus accepting a truth. When you're accepting something, it means you have to do something you may not be ready to do and the expectation that you have to do it. And then when you're not able to do it or you can't do it or you're unable to fulfill it, then you feel like more shit about yourself to begin with when you're already struggling, right? (laughs) Well, I like, it's funny because what when you say the word allowing, what that evokes in me is um, it's a very, it, it's, it's such a, a, I get like a visceral feeling of yes. movement in it actually, and surrendering into something, r- letting something else take you rather than in acceptance. I feel like I'm holding the space for the thing. And the, when you say allowing, I can see how I would discover more because yes. I was letting it take me. Yes. I'm so glad you see that. And it's a small thing. It's a small nuanced thing, but most of what I do, and I'm sure most of what you do, you know, in your work and teaching people, it's all nuance. Being able to let people find a truth in something for themselves takes support and love and kindness, all those things, compassion, but it also takes giving them the space to see themselves in something without an albatross of an expectation before they've even had a chance to explore it for themselves. Yes, it's true. If I don't know that if this is uh, accurate for you, but, but one thing that I, that as a teacher, um, I think it was one of my strengths, but it definitely is a thing, which is, you know, people receive information differently and respond to different things. So not everyone is the same. And so when you're working with, um, and it's harder when you're, you know, sort of talking to either the collective or, you know, actually that I I don't want to say that it's not harder when you're talking to the collective, it's just a different, it's like, you're able to say other things, but, but um, to reach an individual, it's, it is, you are finding a language, you know, in a dialogue, I get that. And, and I, I tried to hear what you were, feel what you were saying, actually, because I, I felt that I felt, I felt the difference in what, in those two things. It makes a huge difference. It's an interesting place to be in trying to redefine the redefining. Yeah. (laughs) And, and to make room for one of the things I teach with people who really want to tap into their words and use those words to connect to themselves, to find their own deepest expression is to make room for the possibility of possibility. Is that like, that sounds almost like uh, the forum or something. Yeah, I have done Landmark, but I have no idea if I, I can't recall. I did Landmark a long time ago, but it's more about like my own learning and my own teaching. Cause I work with a lot of people one-on-one and I teach classes when people come to me and maybe the same thing for you, you know, as a teacher, they're usually afraid. They're usually Um, lack confidence. They're usually unsure. They're very insecure. They can't, they don't connect to their voice. So I welcome people into this idea of creating a possibility of possibility. And maybe somebody else has coined it. I don't know. I mean, I just know that as part of my own teaching and learning of what I experienced, that having that as a starting point really has done so much for people that are either really wounded or really afraid or at this place where they're very unsure or insecure. And it gives them a chance to let themselves off the hook. 
Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I told you, I, I shared with you that I have, you know, this material and I'm revisiting it now. I put it down for like a year because during the pandemic, I, I was really great the first year. And then the second year I was like, I just got super addicted to my devices and, and it was sort of like, just not the creative. I was really creative the first year, but the second year I was like scrolling, watching, you know, whatevering, you know, just totally like, okay, I, this is this thing. I mean, I became, I am 1984, you know, like it is. And so um, I'm finally going back to being productive on my devices. Um, And uh, one of the things is that I'm revisiting this material. And for so many times, some really rich descriptions, especially of my father and, and of all of my family members, but I finally am able to go, okay, I keep hearing the same thing over and over again from people, which is that I need to take this very dense paragraph and then like stretch it out into a scene, stretch that out into a scene. And I'm finally going, okay, I'm willing to put down this like perfectly constructive paragraph that I love so much. And I'm finally ready to like open up to the possibility of the possibility, basically. So it's like, I'm finally giving myself room to break apart this paragraph and like make a scene out of it and risk that I might lose, you know, it's already there. I can always go back to it, but it's like, okay, I'm going to go out there now and like lose myself into some other, you know, expression of this that I don't know what it is. Girl, I, we can, we're going to have a separate conversation because okay, I can okay. totally, I got this, okay, okay. <laughs> this, I know so <laughs> well, and I know I, this, I know, and we can definitely have a different conversation. What I will say is that there's a couple of things of what you said, like just for anybody else who's interested and then, and then I'll have a separate conversation with you about it, but writing about difficult topics is one of the most uh, interesting parts of memoir and creativity that stifles our own expression. And it happens for a couple of reasons. One, because people feel like they have to write for an audience that doesn't even really exist, but we have this like grand perspective of what an audience is. And and, and I'm not saying you do that, but, but most people have some sort of an idea or concept that they have to write for something or someone that is out there that might be reading it. And that could include family members. It could include um, people they think might buy the book. It could include a, a fantasy agent that we haven't yet gotten. You know, the list runs, <laughs> the, the list runs deep because we've already had it in our minds that we're going to be constructing something or we have an expectation of what it is that we're supposed to be engaging with. For instance, if we talk about a memory or something that happened or an incident or a relationship snafu, um, we've already cut the flow off from our own possibility of that possibility, right? So the con- if to reframe this idea of writing as a means of conversation, once we start to do that work, that frees up so much and makes room for that possibility. Because if you're creating a conversation with yourself, you don't, you, when you talk to someone that you love and that you haven't seen in a long time and you're connected with them, and you have so much to tell them, you're not going to already put the words in their mouth of what it is they want to say. Like you wouldn't sit down at a train station 
or at a, a deli in New York on a Sunday at 12 o'clock and expect to have this intimate conversation with somebody you haven't seen in 15 years. How are you going to do that? It's not really conducive. So building that trust with yourself, creating the environment so that you know when you sit there, you'll actually listen and making allowance for these things to come up and these expressions and you start to get familiar with this. And it's like with you, when you teach somebody yoga, when you teach them, you would teach them about the breath or about being present or about how to make room for these other things to come in. It's kind of the same thing with the writing in a similar mindset, get the most benefit. So here I am again with the material and, and letting myself have that space actually. And uh, it's been honestly sitting there for like a year. And every time I revisited the material before I was like, it just, I would just end up in a circle, you know, circular thinking. And um, I'm finally at a place where, you know, whatever that thing, kill your darlings or whatever that thing is, I'm finally there where I'm like, okay, what happens if I turn this paragraph into a, into a scene? <laughs> you know, I mean, like it just, but it took what it took. This is an exciting time for you. I have my energy back too. You know, that, that counts for a lot, you know, cause I didn't have energy after my car accident and now that's coming, you know? So it's all just like letting, letting the flow um, kind of just take me and, uh, redefine me. And I, I'm in that redefining place again, you know, and, and, uh, so I'm excited about whatever this next section is going to be. I'm grateful that we've had a chance to chat and get to know each other. And for everybody whose wisdom, you know, we've, we've collected and, and we're now sharing with each other. And in turn, as teachers, right? We have the opportunity to give, give some of those morsels back, but we also need those breaks in between for ourselves to recalibrate and reconnect and um, redefine. I never really love the saying that I'm starting over. I'm just continuing again. Mm -hmm. That's the way I look at it is I'm not, because you can't ever leave who you are behind. Totally. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. And I, I do believe that as a, you know, when you're a leader, when you, when you're, when you're that kind of a person or a teacher, especially, there are a lot of times when there's no one else that really is leading the way you really have to like, just trust your own instincts, basically, and your own path and go through a lot of shit, basically, like most teachers that I know have to go through a lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing the backstroke. I'm doing the, the doggy paddle. I'm doing... Yeah. So there's no pool of shit. I probably haven't yet crossed, but I'm sure there's probably <laughs> dozens of pools of shit that I will soon travel to. <laughs> oh my gosh. So for people that want to follow you, connect with your book and, and find you, what are all the best ways to, uh, connect to find me well i'm on instagram um which is uh, mandy ingber m-a-n-d-y-i-n-g-b-e-r and then through my instagram i think you can go into that link tree thing and like get everything so i'm uh you know my downloadable workout is there um both books um astrology readings if you want them consultations if you want them um i'm on facebook mandy ingber's yoga philosophy uh, Twitter is, is Mandy Ingver. My website is mandyingver.com. So yeah, it's all sort of, 
I think it's all linked into my, uh, the bio in my uh, uh, Instagram. It all goes back to Meta, basically. Oh, God, yes. That's another another conversation too. But uh, one on the dark web. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you for a very beautiful and inspiring conversation. You are truly uh, quite lovely. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. Oh,